0: Are you ready for Good Talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here, along with Chantal Hébert and Bruce Anderson. It's Good Talk time. It's Friday. Looking forward to the weekend. It's summer. All those things. It's just wonderful. Um, I was on my way to uh, Pearson Airport the other night. And for those who are familiar with that drive, either in or out of Toronto, you'll know that w- one of the things you see just before you either get to Pearson Airport or just after you leave Pearson Airport is the Molson Breweries. And there's a huge flagpole out there, and they, they put different flags up at different times of the year. I mean, the constant is the Canadian flag, but sometimes they'll... They'll put the LEAF flag up there or something. So they'll put the HABs flag up there. In June every year, though, and this we're talking a huge flag. In June every year, they put a Pride flag up because <laughs> June is Pride Month in Canada. Now, this dates back quite a long way for Molson to be tied with the Pride organizations. And it goes back to an old friend of both. Bruce's in mine, and maybe Chantal, you met him at some point, I'm not sure. But he, at the time, he was the vice president of Molson's in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, his name was Charles Frames. And he thought it was important that that company, Molson's, get involved as an advocate, really, on the pride front. He had also been involved on the AIDS front. And it was one of the, not the first, I don't think, but it was one of the first major corporations, companies in Canada that associated itself with Pride. Others followed and have over the generations. But Charles was always very proud of that. And people who knew Charles, he passed away, unfortunately, about 10 years ago. Um, People who knew him were proud of him for his involvement in that. And it's kind of the, you know, moving forward. Uh, in terms of that relationship between a company and an organization like Pride. I raise that only because we are in a, we're at a time, the last year especially, where we've seen a number of people and companies and political parties step away from that association, as well as a number of other things in, the, in, in life Uh, these days. But the pride uh, departure for a lot of companies, and actually, and when you look in the last year, it started with some sports organizations and hockey, especially and the controversy that caused, but it's gone much deeper than that and much more involved, especially so in the States. But you wonder sometimes uh, about the movement within Canada as well. So I raise all this because I want our opening topic today to be kind of pride and politics and is the is the situation changing is the landscape in that relationship changing and if so how and what does it mean uh as we move forward um Chantal do you want to start us on this
1: okay i uh, and i'm starting you off on this uh from a province where it- like abortion rights uh lgbtq rights are not uh negotiable for any political party in the national assembly it's it's not or for a mayor anywhere in the province it is just uh uh given we are we've done this and uh let's move on but i would say that um you have to and you need to tie it to what has been happening in the us uh, with the abortion debate and the the fact that roe v wade uh was cast aside which gave new momentum to the anti-abortion movement and there have always been linkages between the anti-abortion movements and um, distrust or opposition to lgbtq rights uh, and the link between the two usually is the religious right. So as much as it is emboldened forces in the US, I was watching pictures this morning of people who were actually coming to blows uh, in the US over this issue. Uh, parents, presumably, uh, which I, I thought were quite extraordinary. Some uh, of that momentum inevitably leaps onto uh, into Canada. That being said, In the same way that abortion rights are not in any way as divisive in real world in Canada, there is not a a government in this country that is looking to restrict abortion rights at this point, uh, provincially. Uh, And none of the official oppositions in any provinces or federally are saying, let's just do this. Uh, Let's imitate some of the U.S. states. Why is that not happening in large part? Because if... It were happening, a majority of voters would likely say, wait a minute, Uh, besides many of the rights uh, of the LGBTQ community, starting with same sex marriage, uh, are protected by the Charter of Rights and Freedom. And no one is saying we should use the notwithstanding clause. That used to be discussed back then, but no one is saying that or promoting that now. So, yes, I believe that the the movement that opposes Things like Pride Month or or Pride flags has become more vocal, but I do not for a second believe that they are a major force within the electorate, although I think they are a force within at least one major party, i.e. the Federal
0: Conservative Party. Do you think the voice is growing? You you might say it's not a factor right now, but is it?
1: No, I don't. Uh, No, I don't. Uh, And I could be wrong, but I've been wary Uh, for my entire career, and so far it has paid off, to never confuse noise with change. Uh, It's not the same thing, possibly because I did cover the anti-abortion movement during the abortion debate, and I watched them take over uh, successfully hospital boards, school boards, nomination meetings. But once they got into the larger mix of an election campaign where everybody votes they were always pushed to the margin. And that was way back when, we're talking the 80s, where all these issues were a lot more controversial. So I know I think uh, we're in a a place where it's been, uh, the the choice, for instance, for Pierre Poiliev to participate or not in pride parades, a choice that Aaron O'Toole made and he did participate. The cost for not participating, I believe, is still higher in the larger electorate, than than the, the the payoff for staying away.
0: Well, we'll probably uh, we'll probably get to uh, to more on Pierre Polyev on this issue because it does. I mean, this is a guy who, who marched with the with the truckers, right? And he's going to say no to pride, but yes to truckers. I'm I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Um, Bruce, your thoughts on all this?
2: Yeah, I think that there's a there's a bit of a paradox in what we see today. Uh, On the one hand, you could make the case that over the long sweep of time, um, the rights of uh, LGBTQ communities are uh, more entrenched and solidified now um, than they have ever been. At the same time, in the last year or two or maybe three, the degree of backlash and the amount of friction Uh, is also notably on the rise. I think Chantel has touched on a lot of the reasons why. Um, I think that they have to do principally with the the way in which some aspects of the religious community, and I don't mean everybody who's a person of faith, I mean certain aspects of the religious community, especially in the United States, but not exclusively in the United States, have decided that they want to... uh, um, engage in the question of how uh, LGBTQ communities communicate, comport themselves, live their lives, um, celebrate their celebrations as part of the culture war, as Chantal alluded to. Um, the culture war was happening and was going to happen um, because it was the way in which the, the red and the blue were going to continue to try to collide Um less about the size of government, less about the nature of taxation, less about economic or foreign policy, more and more about culture war. Um, and, you know, we've always seen, I think, that there's at least an 8 to 10% segment of the public that um, resists um, equal rights uh, for LGBTQ uh, communities. And... Uh, on the one hand, we can say, well, that's that means 90% don't, and that's true. On the other hand, what we know in the age that we live in is that a noisy 10%, an organized 10%, a, uh, a 10% with champions that have platforms and microphones and websites and money um, can really cause uh, a lot of tension. When we see politicians, and we've seen more of it in the United States, um Playing footsie uh, uh, with this um, with this resistance, the don't say gay, uh, banning books. I mean, there was one example of uh, I think one uh, part of Utah, if I'm not mistaken, where the Bible uh, was uh, was declared a, a book that people shouldn't, young people shouldn't be exposed to, um, the Old Testament, and so there's a uh, there's an uh, you know, From my standpoint, anyway, there's an illogic to some of that. There's excesses that are going on in the, in the spirit of the culture war um, that really do make it seem quite strange, these phenomena where we can have um, you know, really popular programs about drag races. Um, uh, we can have uh, sports franchises and uh, all kinds of entertainers Proclaim very clearly their support for the LGBTQ community, and then we have this backlash where uh, Anheuser Busch was watching in, and I I wouldn't excuse the company for the way that they handled it, but um. There was a transgender person who um, showcased their product, I guess somehow, and it and it it caused people who are on the on the culture war, anti-LGBTQ side to say we need to boycott, including some high-profile people, we need to boycott Anheuser-Busch. All kinds of curiosities emerged in that debate, including the beer that they decided they should drink instead was also made by the same company. Um, So watching those things happen uh, makes me think of it, less as a coordinated and thoughtful effort to push back on human rights and more as a chaotic flailing about as part of this culture war phenomena that's uh, dispiriting to watch. And, and I saw the same clip that Chantal mentioned, uh, where the, you know, the violence that broke out um, was happening. And, and it's, you know, it it pains me to think that we're going to have to have politicians champion these rights again, as though, they are really un- in, in jeopardy, which I don't think they are in the minds of the very large majority of people. Uh, and obviously, I don't think they should be.
0: But, uh, you know, you you mentioned the Anheuser-Busch uh, example, and there was another one uh, as well in the States recently where the backlash was significant. It wasn't, uh, you know, like the uh, Canadian numbers were saying, you know, 8 to 10 percent. It, it was a significant backlash in the States so much so that the company took a, a, a major hit in its stock price. Their shares dropped, their sales dropped, a, whole, it, a lot of stuff was happening. Um, so I want to try to understand why why but, we think but, it's different here, that it's not going to explode on well, the same uh, level here. Well,
1: but for the same reason that we there are no provinces uh, who are about to uh, banish abortion rights or foreclose access to abortion, or are promising to look into doing it. Um, I understand Bruce being dispirited about the notion that we're going to have to restart having this debate, but we've come a long way from when Sven Robinson was standing alone in the House of Commons outing himself. Uh, today, the deputy leader of Pia Poiliev's caucus, Melissa Lansman, is, is gay, I'm not telling secrets here, uh, there are MPs in every party that are not only gay, but it's known, they campaign for office uh, and they tell voters, this is who I am, they're not hiding their identity. So to imagine that having come to this in all of our political families, including the conservatives, we would suddenly go to a US style uh, debate I don't see that. In the same way that I have not seen, um, we we were both around for the eternal debate about the Equal Rights Amendment in the U.S. Can you imagine a situation like that in Canada? Just because they couldn't agree that women and men were equal didn't stop us from saying it as an everyday thing. Uh, and just because they're the abortion in the U.S. is a wedge issue, and their politicians pray doesn't mean that we are uh, taking uh, the list of those who go to prayer breakfasts. We are, we are a different country, yeah, I including this province with its very, very, very strong Catholic background. Do you know of a state in the U.S. that has gone from the deep Catholic background of Quebec to where we are today? I don't. Uh, and that's a major difference. And I can say that because I was raised in the very, very deeply Catholic Quebec. I got 200 on 200 for my catechism exam at the end of primary school. I spent three years learning all those questions. I can still answer them. So to to say just because this is happening in the U.S. means it's coming here in the same shape. I, well, in that case, why don't we just become a 51st state? Yeah. If that's how strongly we feel about our identity collectively,
0: no, no I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think I don't think any of us are that. saying Just that. Um, but what I'm what I'm trying to get to is our LGBTQ rights in Canada in no way under any threat with this what appears to be a rising tide of backlash on those rights in culture wars that exist, not just in the United States, but elsewhere as well.
1: I don't see that. Uh, I, I I like your question, but I'm going to throw a question back at you. Hmm. Where do you see any evidence of it? I'm not talking about the general mood, the school board meeting in Toronto. Who are the politicians leading this battle? Where are they? What are their names?
0: Well, I, I haven't seen any. But I do okay. s- I do see the waffling that's taking place on the, on on support for pride, and whether or not there should be you know should be part of a parade. I mean that's a waffle. You said it yourself. You know, that, past yeah. leaders didn't waffle on that.
1: Uh, no, no, that's not that's not what I said. I said Aaron O'Toole participated in a pride parade. Right.
0: Okay, a past.
1: Mister a- uh, Sheer and his predecessor Stephen Harper never did.
2: So here's where I am on this and. I, I guess I think that I'm pretty close to where Chantal is, that I think we have a pretty strong barrier, a values barrier between us and the U.S. on this question. Um, at the same time, so I'm not suggesting that every bad thing that happens as part of the culture war in the U.S. will naturally transmit in similar proportions in Canada. In fact, there's been lots and lots and lots of examples where that hasn't been the case, and it's because our institutions uh, are pretty secure on these issues, our our people are pretty resolved uh, on these issues. That uh, you know, opinion is settled on them uh, for the most part, um, and our politicians are mostly in the right place. Some with more enthusiasm and deliberation than others, um, and I, I think it's it's fair to say that that uh, some politicians on the right have been the ones that have been the most uh, willing to share thoughts and, and ideas with uh, some fringe parts of the religious community and to also be a little bit softer in their expressions of support for uh, for these communities. But I don't think that we're in danger of, of having the same kind of thing uh, blow up in Canada. I, I do think that when if we, if we assume that it's impossible to happen here, and I know that's not what Chant, I'm not trying to put words in Chantal's mouth. Um, people do consume an awful lot of content uh, about these issues, some of which they think of as being from somewhere else, some of which is just part of the milieu in which they consume information. That's the way that, that people kind of live in these, in, in these communities. And, um, and so I, I can imagine that if you're a, a person, uh, an LGBTQ person, that you might you and you live in Canada, you might see these phenomena and say, "I'm more apprehensive." Not necessarily because I can identify Canadian politicians who aren't doing the right thing, but because I live in the world where these things are happening. I may want to travel to the United States. There might be somebody who lives down the street from me who shares those views and now feels a little bit more empowered to express them or act on them. So I, I, I think we have to be uh, aware of the fact that, and, and the last point I would make an example for me was the hockey team. I think it was the San Jose sharks. Maybe that was the other one that you were thinking of, uh, Peter, when the, when this controversy developed around w- one player saying he wasn't going to wear the pride Jersey in the practice, I watched the Canadian conversation such as it is on social media. And I was a little bit surprised at how many people were, were exhibiting that kind of backlash sentiment saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't be forced to wear it and that sort of thing. And of course that isn't really what happens. It's, these are entertainment uh, companies they make decisions about who they're going to reach. And, and, That's where Anheuser-Busch finds itself, right? Uh, Dylan Mulvaney, uh, 11 million followers on Instagram all over the world, presumably. And uh, you're right, Peter, those sales have been falling week after week after week. And I was reading an interview with one executive, former executive of the company was saying, well, the company is going to see these shares go down, uh, the, the sales go down unless and until they make a clear statement about who they're willing to serve with this product, because right now there's a question mark around it. So there is a challenge for corporations uh, that maybe wasn't as evident in the past, and hopefully all the Canadian corporations that we, uh, that we can admire uh, will kind of hold a firm line on this. All right.
0: Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me just ask it one, one more time, but in a different way. Um, first of all, on the hockey stuff, it, it, you know, it ended up being a lot more than one player on one team. Uh, you know, it moved around a bit and, um, you know, the, the excuse initially was, oh, my Russian, uh, religious background doesn't allow me that way. It went well past that with other players who boycotted, not a lot, not a majority, but they were supported by the, the players union. Anyway, getting back to the, the, the point about, about politics and so let me ask the question this way Uh, what we've all agreed to over the past few weeks is that you know if the conservatives are going to win they've got to build that win uh, at least in part on ontario um and so they have to look good in ontario with their supporters with their base etc etc now you look at somebody like doug ford provincially he was never shy about being a man of the well in this last election, he was not shy about being a man of the people on the pride front, and he was in the parade, right? Um, and he received credit for that or what have you. We're seeing, that you know, we don't know what Pierre Polyev will end up doing. He may well be in a parade somewhere. But at the moment, he's kind of waffling on it. So when you weigh these two things politically... Has he has he got more to win by not being in the parade, or more to win by being in the parade? In that in that in, in say the Ontario example,
2: Chantal, yeah,
1: they are they have a weak uh, a weak flank on abortion. It has cost them in the past. People will link uh, the not wanting to uh, support pride uh, to abortion rights and to the high number of religious right uh, MPs who supported Mr. Kualiev in the leadership campaign. In the past, that has hurt. It hurt Stockwell Day. It hurt Andrew Scheer. Uh And I do think it, it probably would hurt Kualiev more than help him, uh, because it would go to a branding that, as in the past, kept voters away from the federal conservatives.
0: Bruce?
2: I think the math is, uh, I think it's a question of leadership and the math usually works best if you take a leadership position that you believe in. And in this case, I'd be shocked if Pierre Polyev doesn't believe in equal rights. And I'd be surprised if he didn't go um, and express that uh, and go to a parade. Um, I think that it's, it would be easy And lots of political leaders in the past have followed this path of identifying risks and avoiding them. Uh, But if that's all you do, uh, people never really uh, warm to you all that much. Uh, They don't really know why they should get behind you. They only know that they can't identify a thing that you did that really annoyed them. And um, I think for him, he's got enough command of his own communication skills, and he's expressed his opinion. Uh, on LGBTQ rights uh, up till now, that it wouldn't be hard for him to explain why it's important for the Conservative Party under his leadership to uh, make it very clear that all voters are welcome uh, to support the Conservative Party. The risk uh, is definitely that he has been using this language of no more woke nonsense a lot, and That is, for some people, code uh, for a variety of issues. Some have to do with climate change. Some have to do with uh, uh, how businesses choose to invest and organize themselves from an environmental and social and governance standpoint. But it's definitely also code for um, the expansion of rights uh, for minorities, for diversity and inclusion policies, those kinds of things. So it will, uh, you know, if he does do what I think he will do, and Fred Delory's piece, I think you may have alluded to it, but former director of the Conservative Party wrote an interesting column about this the other day. Um, And his view was uh, the same as mine, I think, which is that the leader of that party will probably do the right thing and make that calculation that it's more in his interests to express his point of view in support of LGBTQ communities than not. But uh, a lot of people be, will be watching for it, that's for sure.
0: Okay. Um, good conversation, I think. It was a good conversation. And we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. We'll see, uh, we'll see how things develop over the next little while on this, uh, on this angle. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to try and assess the position of the five national parties, as they are now, um, going into the downside of uh, any way you look at it, of the, this parliamentary term. Uh, with an election at some point in the next couple of years. So we'll assess each party uh, right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, Good Talk, the Friday episode of The Bridge. Chantel uh, uh, and uh, Bruce are with us. I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Okay, Can you turn the music off, please? Thank you. I control all those things, but I sometimes have to remind myself what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, okay, we're going to try to assess the position of the, the five national parties as we head into, um, you know, up to another two years before the, uh, the next election campaign. Um, let's start off briefly with, uh, the green party. So I, when I say briefly, uh, I mean, it, it's not only sure, sort of where they are, they are, but the impact they have on others in the race. Um, Chantal, why don't you start us on this and then I'll get you to start us on the block as well, but let's start with oh. the greens.
1: Green party, um, an unsuccessful passing of the torch from uh, Elizabeth May to a successor. Now, Elizabeth May back in command, which is good and bad in the sense that uh, it is mostly Elizabeth May's party in people's minds uh, if she goes, but happens. Ms. May ran with a co leader called Jonathan Pedno, um, who is uh, quite well known in env- environmental circles, in particular in Quebec, uh, who has thrown his hat. Uh, as a candidate for the party in a by-election that is coming up in Westmount, uh, Westmount NDG, on June 19th. His chances of winning that uh, by-election are nil, Uh, but he did secure an endorsement from former Conservative uh, MP Alain Reyes, who used to be the Quebec Lieutenant for a variety of, of Conservative leaders. But there is a sense of party going nowhere fast Uh, like like it's like someone missed an appointment with with his electoral history and since then uh the party has kind of been dead in the water i don't think it's just personalities me i think that the party did best when stephen harper was prime minister and didn't look like he cared much about climate change But the fact that uh, Justin Trudeau came with uh, more of an agenda, recruited Stephen Guilbeault as environment minister, has kind of taken a lot out of the Green Party's sale. And I'm not sure that it's easy to recreate. Perhaps a conservative government led by Pierre Poiliev might do that, but at this point, I don't see it.
2: Bruce? I started surveying... canadians on environmental issues around the time of lucien bouchard as uh, the uh, environment minister and uh, jean Charest was as well and you know i remember i was also doing a fair bit of work in the mining and the chemistry or chemicals and oil and gas and pipeline sector back then and when i think about what the state of that discussion was in canada then compared to now it really does suggest that the not, if you knew that that was what was going to happen, is what has happened, you would imagine that there would be a period of ascendancy for the Green Party as an idea, followed by a period of struggling to uh, be noticed or to find particular relevance. Because what's happened is that the public has become more aware and enlightened and informed and uh, activist in general at, uh, about environmental issues, in particular climate change, but not only climate change. Uh, But so too has the business community for the most part. I don't want to give them all a a kind of a greenwash here, but uh, the track record of companies uh, embracing sustainability goals, embracing decarbonization goals, um, limiting their exposure to lawsuits and uh, and other things that are associated with pollution. The world is so different. So what you know, so I, I look at that as a broad contextual uh, challenge for the Green Party: is uh, if if everybody is doing a version of what you wanted them to do, or almost everybody, how relevant and compelling is your voice? Now, I think that the Green Party has tried to add other elements of advocacy to the environmental ones, democratic reform, um, social justice, and, and and whatnot. But I don't know that. Um, they've ever had enough share of voice to really gain traction. The last thing I'll say is that Elizabeth May was a unique, has been a unique character in Canadian politics. Her voice uh, is clear. Um, She comes across as thoughtful and sensible and passionate all at the same time, which is uh, not everybody can do that. Um, And uh, so it's not a surprise to me that her Choosing to step away from that position didn't really take. She's easily the most effective uh, environmental uh, communicator that we've seen in the country at a political level. Okay, I,
0: I'm I'm watching the clock here, so I know if we're going to get through everybody, we've got to we've got to move it. So uh, the Bloc Québécois, Chantal.
1: No one uh, is writing uh, the obituary of the Black Québécois anymore, and with good reason. I think that look at this point, is in a pretty good place uh, for two reasons. The first is um, there are more sovereigntists now who believe that the sovereignty could resuscitate than there were five years ago or even over the past three years. Why is that? Because the Parti Québécois provincially elected only three, Uh, MNAs, but still its leader has uh, gained a high profile and has done his style. has gone down well with uh, Quebecers. And that has brought the bloc to come closer to the PQ and and say, you know, you have a, the bloc never insists usually when sovereignty is down on its sovereigntist voice, but now telling sovereigntists to want to believe again, well, we are here to look at us. But I think the other reason why the Bloc is doing OK is related to the weakness of the Conservative Party under Pierre Poilier in Quebec, which leaves the Bloc basically alone to capture the francophone opposition vote to the Liberals. Uh, and that could translate into, into seats. The Bloc has one thing that has always distinguished it: its MPs work hard. And I watched the the hearings this week with uh, David Johnston over Chinese uh, uh, in interventions in Canadian politics, and its MPs were well-prepared in asking substantial questions. And that m- means that when uh, election time comes, you can't say these are people who are just wasting your money waving a Quebec flag in the House of Commons. That's not true. Uh, I think if François Blanchet has been... Uh, pretty good at maintaining that tradition of the block doing its homework.
0: You know, when the block first started, it's what, 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now, in terms of being a participant on election nights, we kind of looked at it, or at least some of us did, uh, thinking, well, this is going to be a one off or maybe a two off, and then they'll sort of disappear. They've never disappeared. I mean, they've had bad election nights, but they've never disappeared. And here you're painting a picture of you know the impact they could have. Uh, yet again, Bruce, do you want a, a short comment on the on the blog?
2: Yeah, very short. From my standpoint, is that once there was a the point in time where you could choose to vote nationalist instead of federalist in Quebec, without worrying that you were um, you were going to create a crisis. That all you were really doing was expressing which uh, order of values was most important to you. And at that point, more people, I think, felt in, completely comfortable voting their nationalist sentiment with the BQ. Um, but it still looked a little bit like a protest movement without a sense of uh, purpose or professionalism. And, and I really like Chantal's point that I think it does now look like a, a, a group of people who go to Ottawa to do work on behalf of their constituents rather than to create a crisis in confederation or have uh, some sort of hidden agenda. They don't pull their hair out at every opportunity. They choose their their battles and they communicate well.
0: Uh, the NDP are actually the number four party in Canada in in terms of the parliament. The blocker are number three, um, but we've moved them up to number three because they are basically a part of the government that exists right now. Um, with their uh, with their uh, agreement with the liberals to keep the liberals in power for another couple of years if certain things are, are followed through on. Um, so where does that put the NDP? Uh, Bruce, you can start us on, on, on the, uh, on the NDP in terms of the, where they stand today in the, uh, in the landscape as such, what, uh, what are we saying?
2: Yeah. The big question for me is the difference in the way in which the three main party, I I say main party leaders, I'm leaving out the block. I take your point about third party in the House, but Singh, Trudeau, and Polyev. to me, the NDP has a leader who was the most popular, might still be on the, you know, by a a narrow margin, if we just look at the positives and the negatives, but he's not as popular as he was uh, only a few years ago. I think people have lost a little bit of interest in in what he has to say or how he says it or what his party stands for and how he represents that. But his best prospects are aversion to Pierre Polyev and aversion to Justin Trudeau. And so if uh, if the more scary Pierre Polyev is to uh, progressive voters, that could, in theory, help Jagmeet Singh, but it could also help Justin Trudeau. Um, the more fatigue there is with justin trudeau that could really help uh jagmeet singh um but he's not so much in control of that especially since jagmeet singh doesn't want to spend every day um uh throwing haymakers at the person that he's done a deal with so he's in a bit of a situation where his success is going to be a function more of i think the the the, the fortunes of those other two leaders a little bit uh, he's along for the ride, and I don't think there's any way to tell whether that ride is going to turn out to be a, an enjoyable one or not.
0: John tell
1: It's an extraordinary story, though, with uh, Chuck Mead Singh. Uh, for the most part, seems to uh, keep the NDP, the New Democrats, satisfied with his fourth place and his uh, support role in the government. When, If you look at what happened on his watch, he lost Quebec, he lost Atlantic Canada. For the most part, uh, is nowhere in on the Toronto landscape. Has not delivered any suburban writings uh, where he used to get elected when he was um, part an MPP at Queens Park. If you look at the entire picture, and if you only looked at electoral results, you'd say this guy has been a big loser for the NDP. But that is not how NDP members feel about Jack Meadsing. They they're comfortable. It was interesting over the past two weeks uh, that when he was being pushed by the conservatives to take his his claims or his, his calls for a public inquiry into the Chinese file, uh, to make that a confidence issue and bring down the government, and he resisted. There was very little pushback from New Democrats uh, saying, what is the NDP doing? It's selling out his soul to Justin Trudeau by not pushing the government to the wall. But... I think no one is under any impression that Jagmeet Singh will beat Pierre Poiliev for prime minister. And I think that's the biggest risk to uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP looking at the next election, this notion that if you really, really do not want Pierre Poiliev because you're progressive, you need someone who is going to beat Pierre Poiliev, not someone who is going to sit back in fourth place and say, this is bad. And I've seen zero evidence Uh, of momentum behind the NDP to take it beyond that fourth place anytime soon. Certainly not coming back in Quebec uh, on on the current watch. So it's kind of a bit of this and the other. What I found astounding over the past week was the NDP, and it's rarely done that. has been running social media ads, attack ads, which they rarely do, and they are all targeted at the Conservatives. Now, it's rare that an opposition party attacks another opposition party. It's rare for the NDP to do it. And it's rare for the NDP to do it about a conservative leader because it makes that conservative leader more of a threat to people who could go from the NDP to the liberals. But uh, I thought that was really interesting. And I'm curious to see what happens depending on the results to the NDP liberal cooperation. I think it could survive the next election depending on the numbers.
0: Okay. We're going to take a final break and we come back. We have 10 minutes to do both the Conservatives and the Liberals. Right after this. Welcome back. We're into the last segment of Good Talk for this week. Chantel and Bruce are with us. Uh, We are going to now place on the the map of opportunity the Liberals and the Conservatives. First up... um, well, no, let's try something different. Let's go with, well, no, I guess that doesn't even work anymore, is that Leger poll.
2: Make up we'll, your mind. Come we'll, on.
0: We'll, st- we'll stick to the regular <laughs> order. The Conservatives.
1: Pick a lane
0: here. Pick a lane. I'm picking the lane that has the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev in it first. Bruce.
2: Well, I think that there's lots of opportunity for the Conservatives to win this uh, next election campaign. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think there are a lot of voters who, who you know, feel that the fiscal situation of the country could use uh, a government that's more preoccupied with that. There's a lot of voters who are feeling as though they've been kind of left a little bit, um, left out a little bit of the conversation that the government has been having about the various social uh, agenda items that are on its to-do list. Um not necessarily against those items, but just really feeling a little bit distant from uh, from the Liberals. So that's created a pool of opportunity for the Conservatives that is easily uh, large enough for them to win a resounding uh, victory at the next election. I happen to agree with Chantal's uh, most recent column, and I'm not saying that she's changed her position on this, where she identified the the reasons why Pierre Polyev was perhaps squandering uh, some of that opportunity or was in the process of doing that. Uh, I I think that um, he he has a fascination uh, with the gimmick uh, and with the rhetoric. Um, And sometimes you can see politicians who have no gift of the gimmick or the rhetoric and you wish that they had some, but he has too much fascination with it and Canadians for the most part the kind of Canadians that we're talking about who could move to his column they're probably going to overlook some parts of his personality that they might not particularly like but if it's only a steady diet of the rhetoric and the gimmick i don't think that he's going to have as much success as he could have and i think it's um i think it's probably something that conservatives have a little bit of anxiety about because they haven't seen the upward momentum in the polling numbers that uh, perhaps they expected to see, uh, given the state of the economy and the fatigue with the liberals. Chantal.
1: Yeah, sometimes it pays off to be part of the sol- solution and not just the person who points at the problem. Uh, if, you, if you could become prime minister by being a, a good opposition leader, Jean Chrétien and Justin Trudeau would not have been prime ministers because they were not very great. Uh, in, in the House of Commons a question period where Justin Trudeau, third party, was asking questions. Was a good time to go to the fridge and get something, uh snack to take you to the, the end of question period? That's how lame it was. Uh, Thomas Mulcair should be prime minister on that basis. And I, I've i been, yes, watching Pierre Poirier. In the cycle, this should be the Conservatives' election to lose. They, there has never been an incumbent who has won a fourth consecutive term in our lifetimes or even in our recent memory. So it's it's there for the conservatives to take, and yet it's not happening. And I you have to think that they are putting too much emphasis on performative skills as opposition in the house of commons and that is what they run in their ads all the time it seems mr Poyev is forever auditioning for his next clip uh, rather than trying to expand uh, the interest of voters on two policies that the uh, voters could find uh, attractive that's not something that can't be repaired but I think they would have the election in the bag with a leader who is less polarizing and a bit more of a unifying figure, frankly. Okay.
0: Um, the other thing you can say about them as they go into this period before the next election is they got bags of money. Bags of money. And money can help make a campaign go round. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, okay, the Liberals. Justin Trudeau. Um Chantel, you start us, and we have exactly five minutes total.
1: It's probably the best case scenario for the liberals to have Justin Trudeau lead them in the election. And as opposed to, I think, Bruce, I'm 99% convinced that, and short of something unforeseen, he will be leading them. But... um, there is kind of a lack of energy uh, in the caucus uh, and uh, in the government. It's a lethargy that uh, seems to come from the top in the sense that nothing ever changes and people are on automatic pilot when they should be fighting for their jobs. And again, I'll refer to what I saw this week, the committee where Mr. Johnston was trying to defend his recommendations on China. And I looked at the liberals who sat there and spent the entire time never addressing any substance, always trying to get Mr. Johnson to say that the conservatives were bad people doing bad things. And I thought, is this what the gene pool is like after three terms? That That's that's the best you can do to shore up uh, a recommendation and a report. Uh, so... I don't know. I mean, I'm waiting to see if new blood is brought in uh, as part of the election slate. And I'm mostly looking at who will decide not to run again, because there are some strong ministers who could well decide that they this is it. They're moving on. Uh, and that would weaken the liberal brand considerably at, in its current anemic state.
0: Bruce. Well,
2: to look at the assets, first of all, I think for the Liberals, Justin Trudeau is a phenomenal asset. I think he's a, he has been, uh, he's got many critics, of course, but he has been a transformative leader. He's made significant changes to the country, and many of the changes that he has made would be even more popular if more people knew about them. Um, it, the, he has done things that are, by and large, in line with what the public would want him to do across a range of issues. Um, There are some, obviously, where he hasn't um, met everyone's expectations or met that uh, widest section of the population's expectations. But on the whole, he has um, engineered public policy that um, most people, if they looked at it carefully, would say, I'm glad he did that, that that, that, those were good changes for the country. Second thing is he's very knowledgeable about the issues. I think he is the most uh, knowledgeable about the issues of the leaders uh, that he competes with and it's not just this field uh, that i would say that about he's a he's a deeply knowledgeable person when it comes to these public policies i think the two um negatives one is kind of an eye of the beholder thing is how he communicates uh, some people uh, like it but more people used to like it than like it now some people find it a bit grating and find it um uh, there's a sense of repetition and and uh a kind of a, a performative aspect to it um, that it, it, that over time creates some resistance to what he has to say because people don't like hearing the way that he has to say it. That you know might also be said for Pierre Polyev, so I don't really know where that uh, nets out. Uh, but uh, I think the um, I think that bigger challenge for him right now, and Chantal put her finger on it as well. I think is governance. Um, He's got a great cabinet uh, uh, by historical standards. There's a lot of talent in there. Um, But I don't feel that the government is well-organized right now. I don't feel that it's well-organized politically. I don't feel like it's well-organized from the standpoint of what the agenda is and how it's going to get accomplished. It feels too diffuse, it feels under-managed, and it feels as though the management of it is uh, not terribly interested in correcting that problem how big a, a factor that will be again, it, it will always come down to Mulroney's adage of, you don't have to be perfect. You only have to be better than the alternatives on offer.
0: Um, I've got time to squeeze one more thing. And usually at, uh, at this time each year in the parliamentary calendar is they're all getting ready for, for summer and a break, not only getting ready, but they're desperate for it. And sometimes that can be part of what we're witnessing in terms of the lethargy, there on Parliament Hill. Uh, but usually at this time of year, the rumors start flying, well, you know what, <clears throat> um, he's going to prorogue the House, which means basically that you stop everything, you don't get pay, you don't end up passing some of the bills that you've been trying to pass, and, mm-hmm. and in this case it could include the budget, um, and you start afresh a in the fall. Uh, that you literally start a whole new session speech from the throne, the whole bit. That plus uh, cabinet shuffle, bring in some fresh blood or change the old blood around. Um, so those rumors are flying around a little bit. Any um, Anybody here, any chance of either of those happening or is that just a normal spin?
1: So um, as far as I understand the budget will be voted and sent to the Senate possibly by the end of the week True closure, another means that the government has at its disposal. I am not hearing rumors of prorogation uh, or cabinet shuffle, although I believe one or the other could happen. But I am I tend to look more towards the end of the year, unless someone leaves, suppose, I don't want to name a minister because it always starts rumors, but suppose Mr. X suddenly leaves for some reason, uh, then you'd have a cabinet shuffle, but... Th- the calendar would suggest prorogation would be more appropriate next January, early in the new year, than in the fall, uh, okay. and would have more impact.
0: Mr. X or Sean Mrs. Charles X?
1: A, yeah, Sean well, Charles I'm trying to steer him. clear of. <laughs> ten of, ten of, seconds. You Bruce. know what? You
2: yeah. <laughs> picked the gender, so she, re, you know, she eliminated half the cabinet right there. <laughs> uh, look, I think that you would prorogue if you had a, a Plan B or a new Plan A. I don't know that I see that, um, so I, I would be surprised if if they did. All right, we're going to wrap it up there.
0: Uh, been an interesting discussion on a lot of uh, a lot of different topics, and uh, I thank you for it, and so does our audience. Uh, Chantel, Bruce, I'm Peter. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again on Monday. You too.